Please be advised that this podcast explores the topics of death, burial and exhumation and features the names of people who are now deceased. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that mention is made of Aboriginal burial sites, along with discussion of historical events that listeners may find distressing. Do you mind if we ask you one quick question? Excuse me, do you have time... Excuse me, do you have time for one question? I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales, and I'm standing in the middle of the Grand Concourse at Sydney's Central Railway Station, trying to find a few people willing to answer a very simple question. Do you know what was here before Central Station was built? I don't, sorry. I should do, but I don't. No, no, no. I haven't got the finest idea. I was born in the 2000s, so I wouldn't have a clue. Central Station is a huge sandstone building. Its clock tower stands 85 metres above the platforms, where trains deposit passengers from around the city, the suburbs and beyond. It feels like it's been here forever. Oh, I actually don't know. Um, Wouldn't have a clue. Wildlife. (laughs) <laughs> Wouldn't have a clue, actually. I grew up in Cronulla and I used to come here all the time, so now, yeah, right. you know, I don't know. 250,000 people pass through here every day. But what a lot of them don't know is that this was, in fact, the final destination for thousands of Sydney ciders. A cemetery? Yes, you're one of the very few who got the question right. I'm a tour guide in Sydney. Oh, so. there you go. The Devonshire Street Cemetery, one of the earliest of the township, took up this whole block. Where once stood monuments to the dead, now stands a very different kind of monument. A nod to progress and industry, almost defying the very idea of death in its seeming permanence. The cemetery was cleared over a century ago. Thousands of bodies dug out of the earth to make way for what was then the biggest and most important development project for the city at that time. A building that would bring Sydney into the brand new 20th century. One step closer to competing with major international cities in both beauty and importance. This is The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know. As a curator at the library, it's my job to find the hidden stories within our collection, sifting through the thousands of records to discover new connections. In this series, we'll be digging up the forgotten stories that lie beneath the bustle of today's central station. I think looking at the way people died tells us a lot about how they had lived. You have the crime narrative there on the gravestone. The smell of putrefaction, of bodies rotting under the ground. By about 1870s, they decided that we need a better station than this tin shed. I do believe they did bring all the remains they found out here. Ten sets of remains per coffin. Join us as we dig up the Devonshire Street Cemetery. It becomes a place not to be revered, but to be shunned. It was about two years ago when I came across a remarkable set of old glass negatives. I was amazed to find out that these were an incredible and rare record of a place that's lost to memory a cemetery that once held the bodies of thousands of Sydney siders. And I realised that these crisp, 
powerful images captured for posterity right before the cemetery was exhumed in 1901 allow us to visit this long gone place. A bleak hillside covered with thousands of headstones hugged at the edges by factories and terrace houses. I was totally blown away and immediately started planning an exhibition to be staged in the galleries here at the State Library. For anyone who's taken a walk through an old cemetery, you wonder about the people buried there. Who were they? What were their lives like? Who was left behind to compose the tragic poetry that's inscribed on so many of the stones? They get under your skin and whisper to you. Edward James Gray, this promising and lamented youth, fell victim at the age of 11 years to the envenomed bite of a snake. Eliza Turner, aged 40 years, after a painful and lingering illness, Joseph Mayrick, which she bore, surgeon, Christian late of Tahiti, he was unfortunately assassinated by a lunatic in this city. So I've spoken to quite a lot of people coming out of the ticket gates here, and it's fair to say that not many people know or care about what was here before the station. As soon as you step out into the street, it's clear that Sydney is no stranger to change. Big public transport upgrades have shut down large parts of the city for over a year now. Right at the station's entrance, the ground has been excavated and tracks laid for the new light rail. And back inside the station, a huge hole is being dug between the platforms for the new metro station. But as the months have passed by, some strange finds keep bringing the works here to a grinding halt. Workers have found human remains underneath the metro platform they're building here. Now, Central Station was built on top of one of Sydney's oldest burial grounds. Back in 1901, the government acquired the land to build Central Railway Station. Now, back then, families were only given two months to exhume their loved ones and move them elsewhere, but some were never moved. Now, work has paused each and every time they've made a discovery. The government has also engaged heritage experts to make sure the site is dealt with respectfully. The Metro finds were made a few months back in February 2019, but the first finds were actually made last October when the light rail excavations uncovered remains right where I'm standing now, on top of the shiny new tram tracks at the station's entrance on Chalmers Street. It's amazing and a bit disturbing to think that we've been walking over these unmarked graves for over a hundred years. It makes you wonder who else has been left behind in other parts of the city. As far as European burials go, we know that the earliest took place down at the harbour at Circular Quay. People were buried close to where they died. That was before the first official cemetery was established on George Street in the 1790s. And we know that when that cemetery was exhumed to make way for Town Hall in the late 1860s, they did a pretty terrible job of making sure all the remains were removed. In more recent years, whenever any construction work happens on that site, we hear news stories of fragments of bone and coffins being found. But we are, of course, talking about Aboriginal land, Gadigal country, which had been home for our First Nations peoples for many thousands of years before it was claimed for the British Empire. The collections here at the library are stored in underground stacks. And that's where I'm headed now, 
with fellow curator and Camilleroy man, Ronald Ricks. It's quiet down here today. Maybe it's because we're early still. Yeah, there's usually people rustling around, isn't there? Beneath the bustle of the cafe and the intensity of the reading rooms are hundreds of thousands of original documents, photographs, paintings, maps, artefacts, row after row of evidence, clues of who we were and how we lived. 171822. So let's just whip out. Uh, this is a big one. I thought this is good. So we can lay it out on that back table. Ronald and I are here to look at an 1822 map of the town of Sydney. It shows the key streets of the CBD, still recognisable to us today. Cockle Bay or Darling Harbour to the west, Woolloomooloo to the east, and the sand hills on the southern outskirts of town, where a cemetery has recently been established. This is, what, 40 odd years after the, the arrival of the first fleet. The land is obviously being cleared. The city of Sydney is taking shape, but there is a remarkable absence of Aboriginal people, which is odd because there were, certainly were Aboriginal people still living and interacting with the townsfolk of Sydney. And it's worth noting that all of the place names on this map are English names. We know from other maps, earlier and later, that the, the names for these different coves and bays have Aboriginal names. Woolloomooloo Bay, for example, is an Aboriginal name. Uh, Wakamagali was Farm Cove. And even at, in 1822, it's amazing to think that Aboriginal people became fringe dwellers of the city of Sydney. So all along Lavender Bay, down to um, South Head, we know that there were small pockets, ca Aboriginal camps around. Uh, we know that Tharawal people down near towards La Perouse had a thriving community. All along the Parramatta River and the Hawkesbury Rivers, there were ongoing battles with these people that were encroaching mm. on Aboriginal, traditional Aboriginal lands. I mean, obviously there was a lot of death, yeah, yeah. Um, but there was also survival. Yeah. I mean, there is, it's well documented that there was a huge outbreak of smallpox in the early years of, of white settlement, and it, and it truly was devastating for the local Aboriginal communities, particularly, of course, because it was a foreign disease to them and they had absolutely no immunity to it. And because of that, a lot of people have thought that Aboriginal people had died out. That perception persisted for, for, for decades afterwards because what a lot of the missionaries, for example, were doing was actually smoothing out the pillow for the death of the Aboriginal culture, if you like. That was on the cover of many missionary magazines. Yeah. There were, it wasn't just disease, of course. We know that there was frontier violence, where, where open warfare, if you like, building fences of all things, what the, what the heck is a fence? But we also know from accounts that Aboriginal people were rapidly adapting to what was happening to their society as well. Although there was a lot of conflict, there was also a lot of interaction, intermarriage even. We know that Aboriginal people were becoming sailors, were um, becoming gardeners and selling stuff to the settlers. And I think what's really interesting and is often forgotten is that most of the Aboriginal people learned English pretty much straight away virtually no white people were learning the Aboriginal language and it, it's really it's really odd that the, the the place where white people settled is where we know the least about the Aboriginal language. I think the thing that we we sort of subconsciously assume is that wherever something is built in terms of a colony that means that Aboriginal people aren't there. Paul Irish is an archaeologist historian and author of the book Hidden in Plain View, 
who over the past 10 years has been piecing together the Aboriginal history of coastal Sydney with researchers from the La Perouse Aboriginal community. Now we know in the 20th century, when governments enacted laws in New South Wales and around the country, they were able to do horrific and intrusive things into Aboriginal people's lives, determining almost every aspect of their lives, including where they could and couldn't live. So it's a bit of a surprise to go back and peel back a bit further in time and look at Sydney, which we would absolutely expect to be like that, and find that partly because there was no government policy and partly because there was still quite a lot of unoccupied space in terms of Europeans uh, around the coastal part of Sydney where it was pretty rocky and scrubby. It gave Aboriginal people this ongoing ability to camp around different coves of Sydney Harbour, around Botany Bay and live this kind of hybrid existence of living on their own terms but also choosing how and when to interact to, to a large degree with with Europeans, either people living just around them or, or in the city. It's also fair to say that most people in Sydney were either indifferent or had a pretty negative view of Aboriginal people, but there were enough people for, for a fairly small Aboriginal population to circulate around in Sydney and find uh, places where they could stay and people who were quite sympathetic to them. And, and it's around the places of residence and work of those people that we, we see kind of patterns of Aboriginal people repeatedly going. Paul, as far as the archaeological record is concerned, do we have a sense of where or how many burials might have taken place in the Sydney area? One of the things that struck me in looking for records of Aboriginal people in the 19th century in Sydney, doing you know searches of newspaper articles and so forth, was also the number of uh, records of Aboriginal burials being discovered by workmen in various guises throughout Sydney. There was a burial, for example, found when they when they built Martin Place in the middle of the city. They, they've been routinely found, but it's a bit misleading as an archeologist, we have a, you know, a register of Aboriginal sites in New South Wales. And if you pull that up for Sydney, there's not a lot of records of burials on it, but in the historical record there is. And possibly we should start adding those to registers like that to make us realise that burials are actually were and are a very common occurrence. If you think about uh, thousands of generations of Aboriginal people living in Sydney, we had both cremation and inhumation burials, but obviously over time that adds up to, you know, a lot of burials. And do we know how long post-contact traditional burial practices continued? We do know from some examples around Sydney that Aboriginal people were being buried in a traditional fashion, sometimes buried with European goods, and that was continuing throughout the 19th century. And we also know in the decades that followed that customs such as not speaking the name of the dead were still in practice in, in Sydney. What we don't actually know a lot about though is the specific rituals of death and burial and how they continued or perhaps changed because quite strangely we often have a lot of discussion of quite prominent Aboriginal people when they pass away but virtually no information about where they were buried and how, um, which I suspect is because it was a very private affair still for Aboriginal people. And, you know, I think that's probably a good thing that it shows that Aboriginal people were able to keep some things to themselves that had cultural importance. But it does leave us also with a dilemma today is that we don't know where some of those burials are, so there's a danger of them being disturbed by developments. And speaking of development, as far as the central station site goes, 
thinking about the remains that have been found there, do we have any idea what the significance or use of that central site might have been? Yeah, so sandy environments like like where the cemetery was built, we, we often find that Aboriginal burials are found in areas like that. Today, you know, there's a lot of buildings around there, there's a lot of reclaimed land, but we're looking um, in that period to something that was very, very close to the headwaters of, of what we now call Darling Harbour. So in fact, that, that sand dune was close to a, a swamp. We do know from some archaeological sites that Aboriginal people would have camped in that sort of general area because this is the mangroves and you have um, fish and shellfish and all sorts of other resources around. We also know that they were still there in the 1820s and I suspect they were still using those waterways So that's amazing that this is the sort of place where you might expect to find burials, but no findings have actually been recorded? To the best of my knowledge, um, there's not been any discoveries of pre-European Aboriginal burials in those sandhills, but it's the kind of place that we routinely find uh, Aboriginal burials, either in archaeological work or in historical records, being uncovered in those sort of sandy deposits, and I wouldn't be surprised... If, if there was uh, a precursor to, to the European burial ground there. The idea that this site may already have been used as a place of burial is pretty incredible. And knowing that, after many decades of use as a cemetery, the whole area was then dug up to build the station, begs the question of whether there were pre-contact remains carried away with the rest of the exhumations, without anyone being the wiser. We may never know... But I do wonder how much all of this is taken into account when remains like the ones found recently near the station are uncovered. Yes, I I would always have in mind that these could be Aboriginal remains. That's Denise Donlan, Senior Lecturer in Anatomy and Histology at the University of Sydney and one of the team of experts who have been called on to assess the Chalmers Street remains. When bones are found, often people can't identify them as human or not. And so the first thing they usually do is call the police. And the police will then generally take the bones to the morgue. And at the morgue, a pathologist and myself will look at the bones and determine then if they're human or not. It turns out that it's actually quite common for bones to be found in and around Sydney. People are always finding bones in their backyards and uh, developers are finding bones. A lot of those bones are actually non-human bones, such as sheep and cow and so on. But some, of course, are human. Some are turn out to be actually quite old. They might be prehistoric Aboriginal bones. They might be from historic burials or they might be recent suspicious cases, such as homicides or just people getting lost in the bush. If they're able to be identified as, you know, more than 100 years old and and or pre-contact, they don't need to go to the morgue and they can be managed by National Parks and Wildlife and the relevant local Aboriginal Land Council. Is it easy to tell if the bones were from the European cemetery or if they're from an earlier burial? From my experience in looking at bones from those sorts of cemeteries in Sydney, they really don't look anything like the pre-contact Aboriginal bones. They're in much worse condition. I think it's to do with them being buried in a coffin. There's a lot of humic material in the soil that's that's in the grave fill, that's put back in the grave, and that combined with the decomposing coffin and so on 
is not good for the, um, for the preservation of bone. I know it's still early days as far as the assessment goes, but can you tell us a bit about how you'll approach the remains found at the central site? Probably the first thing I would look at is setting up a biological profile, which is, is looking at the ancestry, the sex, the age and the height of the person. The other factor that's very important is looking at the post-mortem interval or time since death. Do you think you'll be able to actually get a clear profile from these remains? I have to say that being able to draw up a biological profile of each individual is made very difficult if the bones are not in very good condition, you know, if they're fragmented and if it's incomplete. At this stage, that is the case with these remains. But I'm hopeful because <laughs> there are some teeth have been found. You know, teeth can provide an enormous amount of information, probably a lot more than just a, a single fragment of a bone can certainly provide. What sort of information can teeth give you that other bones can't? Uh, particularly the teeth are going to um, tell you that this person had a traditional diet or not, depending on the tooth wear. Uh, whether they have decay in their teeth. They didn't have decay <laughs> before Europeans. And uh, there's a big difference in tooth size in that Aboriginals have the, actually the largest teeth of any population and Europeans have smallest. It wouldn't just be the assessment of what I've got, but I would want to compare with some other historic remains. And I think that's important to see how people's sort of health changed as time went by in the colony and the teeth can give you good indications about that. From what Denise has told us, the poor condition of the bones may point to a European burial. It's going to take her some months to finish the assessment and hopefully we'll be able to share the results with you. But in the meantime, we want to tell you as much as we can about the Devonshire Street Cemetery. Established on Gadigal land, in January 1820. Government orders, 22nd January 1820. His Excellency the Governor has lately caused a spacious burial ground to be prepared and enclosed with a wall, situated a short distance beyond the brickfields, which is henceforth only to be used as a place of interment for the inhabitants of the town and neighbourhood of Sydney. It's January, so probably a hot and humid day, when the Reverend Marsden sets out from St Philip's Church on York Street, leading a few townspeople and schoolchildren towards the outskirts of town. The procession passes the courthouse, the police office, the market house, and what has lately become known as the old burial ground. There are some grand houses, but mostly basic dwellings, occupied by some of the 13,000 white settlers who populate Sydney at this time. Some of the town's 5,000 convicts work on building sites and in workshops. There are horses, carriages, stray dogs and goats. Dust is kicked up from the road. In the years that follow, most of these buildings will be destroyed and replaced many times over. With the exception of a few key streets, little of this place remains. But it's certain that when Governor Macquarie gave orders to establish a burial ground on the outskirts of town, he couldn't have imagined Sydney would grow to surround it in a few short decades. That's not to say that Macquarie didn't have a vision. 
he was determined to whip Sydney into shape. And it's clear from the regulations laid out for the new cemetery that he envisaged a resting place of order. One, that no vaults or graves be made without the knowledge of the chaplain on duty. Two, Next time on The Burial Files. It became obvious fairly quickly that this cemetery wasn't going to be big enough for the growing population of Sydney. Three, that the ordinary description of graves be also uniformly placed in line with each other, extending east and west according to the order established in the mother country. How does this place of reverence and order become an eyesore in the throbbing heart of a growing city? We want to thank Ronald Briggs, Paul Irish and Denise Donlan for sharing their knowledge with us. Many thanks also to Greta Logue, Heritage Specialist for Sydney Trains and to Sydney Metro. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us to help other people find the podcast. If you're in Sydney between the 25th of May and the 17th of November 2019, be sure to swing by the State Library to visit Dead Central, the exhibition, where you can see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. This episode was produced by Sabrina Organo and mixed by Sonar Sound. It features the voices of Maya Leia, Paul Bewley, Annie Finsterer, Claudine Wheeling, Phil Barter, Rupert Dagus and Brandon Burke. Music by Arasalon, Gregoire Lorme, Julian Guacanme, Mati Palanen, Armando Lagazza, provided by Hamendel. Additional music by Chris Zabriskie. I'm Elise Edmonds. And that the grave digger shall receive for each grave made by him for any free person, the sum of two shillings and sixpence.